This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. Well, I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to open it again to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue this series and looking at the, the theme of the kingdom of heaven throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, last week as we looked at the message that John the Baptist preached, uh, I want to forewarn you that you're going to see really a repetition of that message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The passage we're about to read really marks the beginning, the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. In between the ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus beginning his ministry, there was Jesus' baptism and then the temptation in the wilderness. After Jesus has been tempted, he comes out, and that's where we begin. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and then look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. It happened early on Easter morning. March 23, 2008. Easter had come early that year, but for the men that were aboard the Alaska Ranger, the sun had not yet risen on that Easter Sunday morning. The distress call went out at 2.52 a.m. The seamen on duty with the Coast Guard received the call of Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is the Alaska Ranger. We are flooding, taking on water in the rudder room. The Alaska Ranger is a fishing vessel measuring 189 feet in length, fishing in the Bering Strait, one of the most dangerous seas surrounding the United States. The seamen of the Coast Guard responded, request to know the number on board. Number of persons, 47. The night was in some ways mild by Alaskan standards. The air temperature was 12 degrees. The water temperature was hovering at 32. The ranger began to list and went down. 
The men on board did what they were trained to do. Those that could made it into lifeboats. Those that couldn't put on their survival suits made to keep them alive as they went into the icy waters. And as soon as the call went out, the rescue began. Helicopters were launched. The Coast Guard Cutter Monroe began making its way to that location. But even then, due to the distance and the seas, it was several hours before the first helicopters arrived. Can you imagine for a moment what it was like for those sailors in the water? Those that were in a lifeboat just being pushed back and forth by the sea. Scooting close together to maintain body warmth. But even for those by themselves. In a survival suit in the water with no boat, only a life jacket keeping you afloat. Of the 47 that went into the water, 42 were saved. Tragically, five lost their lives. But for those living, as you imagine for just a moment that fear that would grip you, just watching and waiting, picture for just a moment as you're looking at the horizon and you see a light in the air coming towards you. And you recognize, that is my only hope for survival. That is rescue. That's what I need desperately. The passage we just read tells the story of Jesus' ministry beginning. And the image that is given at the very start of our Lord's ministry is that of light dawning. Light on the horizon coming to rescue. Now, in verse 13, we find the setting, the physical, geographical location of his ministry. He left his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into Capernaum. Nazareth was a small village. Archaeologists estimate maybe up to 500 people lived there. Capernaum was a bit larger. Capernaum was a medium-sized city with several thousand people. And the area that Jesus went into, as it is described there, Galilee of the Gentiles, was a thriving area. It was the northern part of Israel. It would have been the Israel that, much like our area today, would have been growing by leaps and bounds. It was an area full of roads and highways. In fact, it was said by one archaeologist that Galilee was on the way to everywhere. You could almost say that Galilee was then what Atlanta is to air traffic now. Wherever you're going, you've got to go through the airport in Atlanta. Wherever you were traveling, if you were going from Europe to Asia, you went through Galilee. Jerusalem, although it was the prominent city of Israel, was viewed on the road to nowhere. Major highways did not go through Jerusalem. But therein was the problem. Galilee was a victim of its own popularity in the past as well as in the present. In the past, Galilee had passed hands from Greek generals to Roman governors. 
And because of that, there had been an influence of, 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 of Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, coming into the area. And in the present, more and more people were coming. In fact, the area of Galilee was such a thriving area that Capernaum had become the ancient equivalent home of the Roman IRS. It was a city known for its thriving industries, its thriving businesses, and for the Rome, its tax base. Matthew was called out of Capernaum, Matthew being a tax collector. Because of there, Capernaum was known as a very dark place. You see this in verse 16, as Matthew points out how Jesus' ministry fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, that the Messiah would come into this area, Galilee of the Gentiles, and notice how the people are described. Dwelling in darkness. Abiding in darkness. Light and dark are common images found throughout the Scripture. They're used to communicate good and evil. We see this even today. If you are a fan of the Star Wars movies, when they talk about the Force, there is the good side of the Force and the dark side. Light and dark. Communicating something about truth and the nature of reality. See, that's why we can't regulate what Jesus has done, this issue of, of bringing light to the darkness, to just something that happened in the past, because the darkness descends even today. And like it or not, that's where we find ourselves dwelling. I want us to think about the darkness for just a few moments. To recognize what the darkness is and how pervasive it is not just in our culture, but often in our very lives. We think about darkness, the first thing we recognize that darkness is depravity. To understand depravity is not a word we hear a lot. We talk about sin. Depravity almost carries with it a, a sense of gravitas, a heaviness that goes beyond sins. And it sounds harsh, but it's true. To be depraved talks about sin reaching to the very core of our being. That whether we like it or not, we are born sinful. There is a natural inclination in our lives to bend away from God. A, a corrosion as it is in our very souls. For some, the corrosion is very evident. It's like looking at a piece of metal and you know that it's rusted. But others are able to hide the corrosion very well. But no matter how hard we try to hide it, the depravity is still there. Sometimes our hearts are like logs we may come across hiking in the forest. It looks intact, but when you kick it, it soon reveals that the outside is just a veneer. That inside there is a rottenness that has been eaten away by termites. Sometimes it's very easy to look at the egregious examples of depravity around us. And I think sometimes we do that. We become almost enamored by focusing on the troubles out there that we fail to look in our own lives. And see things like greed. Jealousy. Lust. Gossip. Anger. The things that we often accept by saying that's just who we are, but we don't realize 
that each of those things I just mentioned are destructive. Depravity at its essence always destroys. There is no life found in those things, and that's why it's described as darkness. And because of the depravity that's in our lives, that corrosion that eats us away, we often find ourselves in a state of disorientation. Darkness disorients. Those who survived the shipwreck that I mentioned earlier talked about how when they were at sea, there was a sense of disorientation. You didn't know where you were, didn't know which way was north, just surrounded by waves floating. That's what darkness does to us. Leaves us stumbling in the dark. Back in my younger days when I worked as a youth intern at First Athens and we would go to the, the youth group would take a trip to the beach much like our students do now for a, a week of Bible study and, and fun. We would play a game on the beach called Dizzy Lizzy. Don't know if you've ever seen or played this game, but it's very simple. Create lines based on the number of people playing, and then you set the lines up, and about, oh, say, 20 yards away, 30 yards away, you put a bat. The object of the game is each person runs down, they bend over, they put their head on top of the bat, and they run around the bat with their heads touching the bat, oh, say, 20 times, and then have to run back. It's never in a straight line going back because they're disoriented. They're dizzy. That, in many ways, is what life is like when we seek to live according to our own hearts. It creates a confusion. And that's the confusion that sin brings. A sense of chaos. You see, the disorientation comes because we have no fixed moral star, no fixed light to guide us. You see, darkness represents disorientation because darkness represents a lack of knowledge of God. And it's not that the word God is not known, but that for most, God is an abstraction. It's just a word, a concept that to many just represents this idea that is far and away from reality. Or for others, their knowledge of God is limited only to what they think. And they believe that God is angry, out to get them, mad at them for slots both real and imagined. And as a result... Darkness results in despondency, despair. I've often heard depression described as anger turned inward because we have this problem of detravity that's left us disoriented and we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to, to deal with the things that are, are eating away in our heart. And we realize that we are powerless to change these things. That even in our own struggles, we can't bring about lasting change to get rid of all these things that we know are eating away at our very souls. So the question that comes from Jeremiah the prophet haunts us when he said, Can the leopard change its spots? Now I recognize that sometimes through sheer will, we can give an appearance of change we can make New Year's resolutions and be better people. We can, can begin to work to be, be kinder and gentler. However, changing the outside cannot change the inward reality. Suppose you were skilled enough working with automobiles that you brought, bought a 1972 Volkswagen Beetle. 
And you decided that while you liked the gas mileage of that Beetle, you wanted to do something different. So through a series of connections, you bought a Mercedes chassis. And you put that Mercedes chassis around the engine of that Volkswagen Beetle. Just work with me here. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the inside. The engine is still that of a Volkswagen Beetle. We can do all the rearranging we can on the outside, but it cannot change our hearts. You see, despondency comes when we can't change our situation. You see, we struggle with changing our hearts so that we become loving and gracious and kind and compassionate. Things that the flesh cannot generate on its own. And then when we encounter situations that we can't change, and we will all encounter them. It may be a circumstance that you are powerless to change. It may be people in your life that you hurt for. But you and I can't change them. And we feel powerless and despondence. And perhaps the greatest situation we face that we cannot change is nothing other than death. This is the greatest darkness. Death is the enemy. A defeated enemy, yes, but still an enemy. There was a time when churches were built and when they had not just steeples, but they would have clock towers. And often on those clock towers, like the one you see on the right of the screen, there would be inscribed on the face of the clock a Latin phrase, mors serta, nora inserta. Death is certain. The hour, uncertain. Doesn't that bless your heart? But it was a reminder that barring the return of Jesus Christ, death is certain. But we don't know when. That brings a darkness in our lives. A darkness that says, what can we do? One of the better known directors in Hollywood is the late Stanley Kerbick. He was not a believer. In fact, one of his statements shows that he was a man who had adopted the philosophy of nihilism, or nihilism, a belief in darkness and things are just bad. He was asked about the meaning of the universe, and his answer was, there is none. He said, and I quote, the very meaninglessness of life forces man to create his own meaning. However vast the darkness We must supply our own light. But can we? Can you and I generate our own light to overcome those four things I just mentioned? Our depravity, our despondency, our disorientation, and even death? See, if I were to stop the message here, there would be no hope. But I want you to, rem- to be reminded that according to this passage, when Jesus came, he came as the light to shine in the darkness. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, that is the good news of the gospel. There is light on the horizon. In the darkness, there is confusion and chaos, but the light is order and shalom. In darkness, there is despondency, but the light is hope. In darkness, there is death, but the light is life, and that light is the life of man, and that light is Jesus. 
And I want you to notice some things according to this passage about the light. If you're thinking, man, this, this message has started off heavy and dark, you're right, it has. For we must understand the darkness in order to understand the beauty of the light. When Jesus shines, when Jesus shines, he shines promptly. Look at verse 12 and the timing of it. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. The beginning of his ministry begins after the arrest of John the Baptist. And this is a reminder that God's timing is perfect. Jesus lived his life aware of God's timing. Many times he would tell those after, after he had performed miracles, he would say, don't say anything publicly because now is not the time. Jesus lived in awareness that God's timing was perfect and he walked in obedience to God's timing. And so when John is arrested and it seems as if the message of repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand has been silenced, Jesus steps up and begins his ministry. It's a reminder to us that the light shines properly exactly when it should. God is like the director standing in front of an orchestra. I do not claim to be musical. I have never directed an orchestra and never see envision a time when I will. If I am directing an orchestra, things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. But I've often thought if there is one instrument where you cannot cover up a mistake, it's that one playing the cymbals. A symbol played at the wrong time, there's just no way to hide that. I've often thought a, a horn player, a violinist, someone may play a wrong note, you just keep going, but you miss, you, you clang the symbol at the wrong time, what do you do? Just, you just go. But what does a good director do? He's directing. And that symbolist, I guess that's the right word for a symbol player. The symbolist is paying attention. And at the right moment, according to the score, he points and... <laughs> perfect timing. I don't claim to understand God's timing. That's his prerogative. But our hope must lie in that God's timing is prompt and accurate. It's the waiting for us that is hard. But just because he has not acted yet does not mean that God won't. And certainly when it comes to the light shining at the right moment, Jesus' life is full of the direct timing of God. Paul pointed this out in Galatians when he said, At just the right time, Jesus was born. At just the right time, Jesus comes and he's preaching. And this is the beauty of it. He shines unexpectedly. Verse 13, once again, gives the geographic location where his ministry began. The reason I say this is unexpected is because all the religious leaders expected the Messiah to show up preaching in Jerusalem. Although Capernaum was large and there was a heavy traffic population there with roads going through, Jerusalem was the city. It was the religious and political hub of Israel. So surely if the light is going to shine, it begins in Jerusalem. That's what we would expect. But that is the beauty of God's grace. God works unexpectedly. And where does God begin his work of the gospel? He begins it in the most dark places. That is the beauty and the unexpected nature of grace. It's very easy for us to fall into the thinking that 
It is only the good and the kind that deserve grace. You know, we want to give grace to those whom it is easy to give grace to. But if we live like that, there is a sneaky form of merit or karma coming into our thinking. Well, they deserve grace. They deserve to be forgiven. The very nature of grace, the very definition of grace, means that it's undeserved. If our Lord Jesus operated on the principle that he would give grace only to those who would deserve it, none of us would receive it. That's the unexpected nature and the scandalous nature of grace. It's for those who feel like they can go no lower that God gives His grace to. It is for those who are in darkness. It is for all of us. For there's no other way of salvation other than grace given through Jesus Christ. And that's where the transformation occurs. Where we pass from darkness into light. To me, some of the most beautiful images in the scripture revolve around the transformation that comes because of the gospel. He says, come and trade your your ashes for beauty. There's a a museum. It's the City Museum of St. Louis that was founded in 1997. This is one of those museums that were able to travel. It's like, I would love to see that because the unique thing about the City Museum of St. Louis, according to its website, is this. It is constructed from repurposed architectural and industrial objects. You know what repurposed architectural and industrial objects are? Junk. Everything in the museum is made from things that have been thrown away. Things that at one time were useful, but now they've been discarded. Things that it was believed by by the previous owners that were now useless. But someone had a vision and took those things and said, what was useless is now useful. What was discarded is now owned. And I'm thinking, what a beautiful picture of the grace of God that says, those of you that are disoriented, disheveled, that are despondent, God says, come to me with those things and I will give you hope and purpose and grace and transformation. Trade your ashes for beauty. That is the light shining. And the beautiful thing is the light shines clearly. The message in verse 17, Jesus began to preach. Jesus came preaching. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now it's easy to think about the signs of the kingdom. The miracles. Remember, the miracles were never an end unto themselves. They were there to point to the inauguration of the kingdom. When John the Baptist was approaching death and he began to wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? He sends his disciples to Jesus and asks, are you the one? And Jesus responds by saying, tell John the blind to see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Those were signs of the kingdom. But those signs were meant to point to the message of the kingdom. And what is the message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is around, is at hand. The call to repent is the call to turn around for you may miss it. It's saying that you're going and looking in one direction. And if you keep going in that direction, you will miss the kingdom. Turn around. And see it. 
Leslie Newbingen was a, a British missionary to India. He was a, a theologian, a pastor, and a writer. He tells the story of when he was approaching a village and word of his coming had spread and the villagers were excited about Leslie Newbingen coming to their village. And there was a road that came into the village, one road. So you either came into the village from the south or from the north. That was your two options. The village had prepared a, basically a, a celebration for his arrival because his reputation was of such. They were excited about him coming, and it was their understanding he was coming in from the south. So they had everything there. They had, had their musical instruments, that everything ready, but somehow there was a miscommunication. So Newbegin was coming in from the north. When word came to this, the village about the mistake, they sent someone to meet him and had him wait so that the village could turn around literally and come to the north to greet him. That's the idea of repentance. If you choose to stay where you are, you'll miss the kingdom. Repent means to turn around to seek the kingdom, to see the light, to dwell in the light. And here's the tragedy. While there were some in Capernaum that believed, Matthew, for example, Peter, James, and John, the vast majority of the city rejected Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is preaching at Capernaum with final time. And he said these words, Capernaum, if the works that were done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. So therefore, Capernaum, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Than for you. Let the heaviness of those words sink in. The light had shined brightly in Capernaum. And it was ignored. Rejected. Let us not be guilty of the same thing. You have never turned toward the light, turned toward Jesus. This morning, I encourage you to do that. If you have questions about following Christ, I will be glad to answer them, whether it be during the time of invitation or afterward. But know this, the light has come. And it is Jesus. Those four D's that I described earlier do not have to determine your life. Look to the light. And believe. Bow with me in prayer if you will. Heavenly Father I thank you for the glory of the message of the gospel. For Lord we recognize that apart from you we have nothing. So Lord I thank you for your grace. And that the light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't overcome it. Lord the evil one has tried and failed. And even now. The evil one tries to stop the light of the gospel from shining through the preached word. But Lord, he will fail for your word is unconquerable. But Father, I pray that in our lives we will not ignore the light. 
Father, many have turned toward the light already. And Lord, I pray that within our lives, you would let the light shine even bright, more brightly. Work within us, Lord, so that we are continually transformed. Father, as I was reminded yesterday morning at the men's breakfast that, Lord, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We don't just change our spots. We change who we are in the gospel. Thank you for that, O oh God. Lord, I pray that we will never forget that. Bring glory to your name, for it is in your name we pray. Amen.